Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that explores the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. I am Bert Dreher, Chairman of the Department of Diagnostic, Molecular, and Interventional Radiology at the Mount Sinai Medical Center and the Icon School of Medicine, as well as a past president of the Radiologic Society of North America. I cordially invite you to sit back and relax as we journey through chest and cardiac imaging through the lens of the field's leading experts. And now, from the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, New York, it is my pleasure to introduce your hosts, Adam Bernheim and Michael Charlie. Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging. I am Adam Bernheim, and I'm joined as always by Mike Chung. And uh, it's it's amazing how quickly time goes. It's already July. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing great. We're in the thick of summer. Uh, we have our new residents and fellows starting, and I'm sure every institution out there is very excited for the start of this new academic year. How, how's the new baby, Mike? Uh, new baby Silas is doing spectacular. He eats a lot. <laughs> Okay, great. Today we are joined by our first guest who is not a radiologist by training. He is a pulmonologist and actually president of the Fleischner Society. Uh, We're pleased to welcome Dr. Charles Powell, who is a professor of medicine and chief of the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine here at our institution at Mount Sinai Medical Center. Dr. Powell completed his medical degree at the University of Chicago, his residency in internal medicine at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center here in New York, and completed a clinical and research fellowship at Boston University School of Medicine. With clinical and research interests in lung cancer and mesothelioma, Dr. Powell's investigations center on understanding the genetic and susceptibility factors for these diseases and the molecular events that are important in the early stages of lung cancer development and progression. He is the chair of the Thoracic Oncology Section of the American Thoracic Society and a recipient of the American Cancer Society Research Scholar Award. It's our pleasure to have you here, Dr. Powell. Welcome. How are you doing, Dr. Powell? Today's a great day. Thanks so much. Um, Maybe we can start just by learning a little bit about you and your backgrounds, where you're from, uh, what drew you to medicine and to pulmonology. I'm a New Yorker. I was born in New York at St. Luke's, now Mount Sinai St. Luke's. And uh, for my first seven years of life, I lived downtown New York City in Peter Cooper Village, First Avenue and 14th Street, near the current location of Mount Sinai, Beth Israel. Things have kind of come in a circle here, right? Mm. And then subsequently, I I grew up the rest of my time in suburbs of New York, in in New Jersey, and uh, did my college education in Philadelphia at University of Pennsylvania. Go Quakers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Philadelphian originally myself. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, so that was uh, shortly after Philadelphia did some really good things, like make it to the Final Four when <laughs> the Quakers did that. Uh, that hasn't happened, probably won't happen again. 
and uh, also around the time when Philadelphia was having some tough times as a city. I don't know if you remember, maybe you guys are too young, but things are really bad in the city of Philadelphia. And, and on my graduation weekend, there was a huge fire at an apartment complex nearby the, the campus um, that was uh, in induced to try and drive out a protest. So that was uh, the dark days of Philly, but now it's much better, of course. So that was uh, college, and then med school was in Chicago. I went to the University of Chicago, and that was interesting and formative. That's when I became exposed to the pulmonologists who helped me develop my interest in pulmonary medicine. Mm -hmm. And uh, in physiology, uh, we had lectures from Paul Schumacher, who's now the current editor of the Red Journal, and Larry Wood and Jesse Hall and Greg Schmidt, who were all wonderful clinicians and superb educators. And them, in addition to other wonderful clinicians, helped develop my interest in pulmonary medicine, which uh, then I, I took on after I did my residency and, and such. How did you develop a further interest in specifically lung cancer and researching it? Um, what, did that also grow from your med school experiences too? No, that came later on. So after med school, of course, I did my residency in, in New York City at Columbia Presbyterian. And, and that also was interesting in so many different ways. As you, you all know, you did a year of medicine, right? So that, that's a real challenging year. Um, I, I think internship after med school is one of the most formative experiences that we have. We totally go from being a student to actually having a lot of responsibility in a job, but responsibility for caring for patients. Th that was an intense, wonderful experience for me. I, I learned more in that year than I think I learned in many other years before and after. I continued on my residency at, at Columbia, of course, and did a chief residency year there and decided to go into pulmonary medicine. And my interest in lung cancer didn't happen until I started my pulmonary fellowship. And that I did at Boston University a true academic hotbed of uh, training leaders in pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine. And my interest there came from our experience at the VA. So back then in Boston, the Boston University Pulmonary Program had multiple hospitals. We had Boston City Hospital. We had the smaller private hospital, West Newton Campus, and we also had the the VA hospital in Jamaica Plain. It was at that time a, a standalone hospital, uh, inpatient facility for which pulmonary had an uh, entire floor. Uh, it was the, uh, the center wing of the 11th floor. And that's where we had an inpatient unit to which we admitted and cared for patients. We had a bronchoscopy suite on the floor. We had an ICU down the hall. And, and that was the, the hotbed of our, our clinical program. Most of the vets we were taking care of were World War II vets who uh, were right at the age to be at very high risk for lung cancer. Most of them had smoked. So we had a very high prevalence of lung cancer and COPD at the time. Every week, we would have a interdisciplinary conference, similar to the one we go to together uh, Wednesday mornings here. And we would present the veterans who were diagnosed with lung cancer. Uh, many of them, of course, diagnosed with advanced stage disease. That's just the, the nature of lung cancer, especially at that time. And we would use the accumulated evidence to promote the best path forward for treating these patients. And 
what struck me was that during the course of time, we would present these patients, recommend a path, and then six, 12 months later, we'd hear about the same patient who typically presented again with recurrence and progression of disease. And, and that was, of course, typical for the time. So it really became quite obvious that there's a huge clinical challenge for lung cancer and that there had to be a way to apply some of the new knowledge that we were gaining about cancer in general, the new techniques that were becoming available to do um, wide, high throughput evaluation of transcriptomic signatures and genetic alterations in cancer and be able to apply that to enhancing early diagnosis improve classification and treatment of cancer. It struck me as an opportunity for me to become an expert in that area and apply it to this uh, immense clinical problem that we were faced with. That was a unique concept at the time. There were not many pulmonologists interested in lung cancer. <coughs> if you went to the ATS meeting around the time I was in my fellowship and there was a meeting of the experts in lung cancer, there would be five or six people in the room. That would be it. Why is that? It was it was it like something relegated for the surgeons, or like was it like an oncology thing? What, what was the reason behind that? I think it was a combination of several things. One is I don't think pulmonologists had an interest in lung cancer, and two is I think that lung cancer was considered to be the purview of other specialties, thoracic surgeons for early stage disease, and the purview mm. of medical oncologists for advanced stage disease, and. And at that time, I don't think there was a full appreciation about what pulmonary could bring to the table. And, and clearly, what pulmonary could bring to the table was an understanding about how lung cancer can evolve in patients who are at high risk for lung cancer. That those, are, those patients at high risk for lung cancer, that's our bread and butter patient population. Those are the smokers who have smoking-related diseases, such as COPD and, and ILD. Those are our patients. Those are the ones who are going to develop lung cancer. Those are the ones who present a great opportunity for us to understand the progression from risk to disease in a population such as that. That was in, in one very important aspect. The second important aspect was we certainly became Im more important as we were able to aid in the staging of lung cancer and having bronchoscopy in our toolbox and having EBIS as a methodology that could be combined with bronchoscopy to enhance the staging of the mediastinum for patients with cancer and to, at the same time, do a diagnosis and staging procedure all at once um, enhanced, the, I think, the, the role of pulmonologists in the management of cancer and helped integrate us uh, further into it, uh, the field, and, and helped to emphasize the importance. Uh, furthermore, I believe a lot of the insights into the, the process of carcinogenesis have been con have seen multiple contributions from the pulmonary field as well, and that's helped enhance our role in the field, and not to mention our continuous role in managing the complications uh, that occur in patients with lung cancer, whether it be uh, obstructive disease in the airways or radiation pneumonitis, and today uh, pneumonitis associated with immunotherapy, those, uh, those roles of managing complications of cancer treatment have always been in the purview of pulmonary. But at that time, as I said, there really was not much 
role for pulmonologists in lung cancer. And certainly most fellowship programs didn't have a track for training on the clinical side or in the research side for sure in, in lung cancer. But my program was open to helping me to develop my career in that field. So I came to them and said, for my research year, I would like to focus on lung cancer. Acknowledging that we didn't have a track already in lung cancer research at Boston University. But there was a lot of understanding about the potential that field may be able to produce for for me and and for the program. And so I was offered the opportunity to get training in, in lung cancer research. And throughout your career, as you've uh, devoted so much of your research and academic pursuits towards understanding the genetic and other factors related to lung cancer or mesothelioma, um, what are some of the highlights of some of the outcomes of that research, and um, what is it that you anticipate for the future? Well, what I learned from the research that we've been doing is the importance of being able to identify biologically relevant and clinically important subsets of disease. You probably know that in the past, when we thought about lung cancer, we simply thought about non-small cell lung cancer and small cell lung cancer. And we treated all non-small cell lung cancers that were advanced stage the same. Subsequently, we've been able to understand that there are subsets of non-small cell lung cancer that respond differently to different chemotherapeutic agents. So that really provided a clinical relevance to understanding the important histological subtypes within non-small cell lung cancer. And now, of course, we've gone even further beyond that. With advanced stage disease, now we know there are molecular subsets of adenocarcinoma that respond dramatically to targeted therapies for the tumors that harbor the genetic alteration to which the tumor may be susceptible, EGFR and, and ALK as just two e- examples of that. So, so that is the advanced stage relevance of understanding the classification. My work is focused on early stage lung cancer, specifically on lung adenocarcinoma. And it used to be that we would think about lung adenocarcinoma in the early stage as a single disease entity. But now we've come to understand that there are certain subtypes of lung adenocarcinoma that five-year survival rates that can be 100%, which is much different than the typical 17% five-year survival rate for lung cancer. So what is it about those tumors that makes them different from the other early-stage lung cancers and certainly from the other advanced-stage lung cancers that also are adenocarcinomas? That's what my work is focused on. So we've done a lot of, of effort to understand the biological differences that underlie lung adenocarcinoma, and we've identified that there are at least three different molecular subtypes of adenocarcinoma. One is comprised of these early in situ type of cancers. One is comprised of the very aggressive solid types of adenocarcinomas. And then there's a third group of the tumors that are both have a component of a lipidic in situ type pathology combined with a solid component. So those, the identification of those three subtypes of lung adenocarcinoma was an observation not only from our team, but from multiple teams that have done the similar types of molecular profiling. And that has then translated into efforts to redo the histological classification of lung adenocarcinoma. That was an effort led by Bill Travis at Memorial Sloan Kettering that I participated in. And, and that, I think, has helped to clarify the importance of the different subtypes of adenocarcinoma. And that comes into the conversation we have every day 
when we are contemplating a diagnosis of lung cancer in a patient who has a finding on a CT scan. We make important correlations between the type of finding that we see on a CT scan, a non-solid lesion versus a part-solid lesion versus a solid lesion, and we know, know that that correlates pathologically with these three subtypes that I just described, and that correlates with difference in outcomes that we can expect. So um, our work to try and identify the biological pathways that characterize these different subsets, I think, has helped us in the field to appreciate the differences. And going forward, our work uh, focuses on understanding that within a specific subtype of adenocarcinoma, there may be important molecular features that will signify a likelihood to remain indolent for an in-situ cancer or to progress from an in-situ cancer. And that's where th the work in the lab focuses at present using human tissues, cell models, and animal models. So you foresee a bigger, even bigger reliance on tissue diagnosis, uh, the importance of getting that bronc sample or you know, that CT guided biopsy sample to kind of make these kind of clinical decisions? Is that what you... I do. Yeah, imaging alone is suggestive but not definitive, and, and that it's the, it, and the pathology alone mm -hmm. is important but not definitive. And, and more and more we're learning that there is additional information that can be gained from evaluation of the molecular and genomic aspects of specific tumors that can provide additional prognostic information and guidance as a therapeutic tool. So I do think that we will continue to rely upon specific molecular evaluations of tumors as we try to um, hone in on therapies that will be most effective for specific patients. Whether the future will allow us to be able to acquire that information from methods other than biopsy of the ex ex of tumor itself, like for example, from blood, right? Liquid biopsy? Yeah, 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 which I think is becoming more and more uh, feasible as the technology becomes more and more sensitive. Mm -hmm. um, then that will be, a, I think, a strategy that we'll rely more and more upon in the future. For patients with multifocal lung adenocarcinoma, which is something that I think um, either we're seeing more of it or we just have an increased awareness of it, but it seems to be quite common, do you find that those patients have tumors that have a genetic or genomic homogeneity between the lesions, or are they often different? Yeah, so that's a really good question, and one that I think the field struggles with. So there are several possibilities for explaining multiple tumors that can occur in a single patient. One is they occur uh, as a metastatic spread of one tumor. Um, one, another explanation is they arise independently uh, as, as clonally independent tumors. I think the latter is probably more possible, especially since it arises from a field that is probably similarly exposed to carcinogens and sets it up for the development of adenocarcinoma. But we have no reliable mechanism to distinguish whether two tumors in the same patient represent synchronous primaries or, or metastases. The genetic tests haven't been that helpful in that regard. That's one point about those. The second point is, what is the best strategy for managing them? So right now, you know, we think, okay, which is the dominant lesion, and why don't we focus our attention on the dominant lesion? So how do we define a dominant lesion? Right now, we do the best we can. We say, well, the one that has the biggest solid component is the one that we think is most dominant. And we go after that because we think that's the one that's going to be most likely to invade and potentially cause metastasis. But we don't know that for sure, right? And, and we don't know whether 
it's going to be that lesion that'll be the one that will be most likely to change the patient stage and, and prognosis, or whether it's going to be another one that will develop a solid component relatively quickly and then metastasize. So to me, that's part of the challenge that the types of approaches that we focus on can help with. So if we had a patient with two different tumors and we did a, a quick molecular analysis to identify the biomarker subsets that are associated with likelihood of progression or likelihood to remain indolent, and we were to compare those two tumors, that I think would provide potential additional information that may help us to know, at least genomically, which might be more dominant. And it might correlate exactly with what we think by imaging, or it might not. That's So um, I find that a very important, challenging question. And you've been hinting at it uh, a bit already, but um, with a lot of the advances in imaging technology that you've seen throughout the course of your career, um, radiology plays an even greater role in, um, I guess, the staging, the diagnosis, and the management of all these patients. But how has your relationship with um, radiologists or imaging just evolved over the years, would you say? Well, I think I learned early on the importance of having a great working relationship with awesome thoracic radiologists. Uh, Chicago, the ra chest radiologists were John Fennessy and Heber McMahon. We learned a ton f as medical students from them. At Boston University, during my fellowship, we had uh, the Gale brothers at the VA hospital, and, and Peter Clark was the Boston City radiologist. All of them very smart, really understood medicine, understood pulmonary disease, understood radiology, of course. At Columbia, we had Dr. John Austin, true giant in, in the field, who I, I learned a, a ton from. Um, Dr. Austin kept no cards of all the interesting cases that he saw and reminded me of Jack Falling, who was one of my primary pulmonary mentors at Boston University, uh, who taught me most of what I know about clinical pulmonary medicine during my first year of fellowship. And Jack also was an index card person. Every interesting case he would write down, and every time he would ask me a question on, on consult rounds, if I didn't know the answer right away, he would go on his note card. And then I knew until I uh, answered that question, whether it be the next day or the day after that, he would keep asking because it was written down on the cards. So Jack was an awesome imager, uh, was awesome at evaluating images, and he could do it most of it by himself, and he actually trained us on how to read images, but he also worked really closely with the chest radiologists and, and knew which questions were best to ask them. And that helped us to understand how that working relationship can develop and how it's so important. Uh, as I moved over to Mount Sinai, one of the most important things that I looked at before I, I took the position here to run the division was the relationship between the pulmonary division and the chest group. And here, the chest group is large and it's great, and the working relationship is very tight. And I appreciated that a great pulmonologist is only possible when you have a great thoracic team of radiologists with you. Same applies to other specialties that are related to pulmonary medicine, including pathology and thoracic surgery. You need to, you need to, to be most effective as a pulmonologist, you need to have a real wonderful team to interact with. So I've been really fortunate to, to have that. And, and I think the ability to ask the specific questions, bring the clinical information to the radiologist for, to get the insightful viewpoint of the radiologist from just looking at the image and then to bring it together with the clinical information helps us together uh, make that test incredibly helpful for the patient who 
was the subject of the imaging study. As most of our listeners are radiologists, um, is there anything that you would like us to see as radiologists do better or do differently that would better help you as the pulmonologist or the patient? What I find to be most helpful for us is for the radiologists we work with to have a, a close working relationship and for both parties to be accessible to each other. Um, there are a lot of different ways to do it. At some centers, such as in Philadelphia, the radiologists actually are embedded within the, the clinical practice. That's great, <laughs> but that's not always feasible, doable for a variety of reasons. Um, but we know uh, where we practice now and where we've practiced before, it's very easy to communicate uh, by phone if necessary and also um, to go in person and, and talk about important cases. And to be able to do that when the patient's in front of us so that we can advance our ability to make an appropriate diagnosis treatment is incredibly helpful. So that accessibility and, and the ability to interact regularly and um, especially when the patient is in front of us is, is very, very helpful. I think the combined conferences that we do together are superb. I know I learn a lot from those cases. I think the radiologists learn a lot from those cases. And so much of what we do is recognition of patterns and being able to apply what we learn to the next case that we see, that we all become much better what we do from those types of interactive conferences that we have together. So another example of accessibility interaction is being important for both parties. Kind of, and you were talking about the, uh, your interest in early lung cancer or early stage lung cancer, but uh, to kind of switch gears here and talk about lung cancer screening, um, are you satisfied with the state of lung cancer screening and how it's been adopted, like not only in the U.S., but over the world um, in the past few years at this point? And um, what do you really think is in the future for, you know, what, what's the future outcomes going to be for lung cancer screening? So lung cancer screening has been a long path. And, and I've been a part of it for a long time. And part of me is satisfied and part of me is dissatisfied with where we are. So just to summarize, it became clear from the work that was done by Claudia Henschke and Davian Kelovitz through their efforts in LCAP that lung cancer screening by CT scan was a very promising modality for early detection of lung cancer. And there were also data concurrently from smaller studies in Japan to show the same thing. And we clearly knew there was a need to diagnose lung cancer earlier because over half of lung cancer is detected late. Eventually, the appropriate trial was done to show using traditional clinical research methodology, a randomized control trial, that lung cancer screening by CT scan as shown by NLST would decrease lung cancer-specific mortality and also decrease overall mortality. That was in my view, that study was a home run. And I think many of us expected that that study would be sufficient to um, change the attitude of payers to cover screening and the attitude of providers to offer screening. But that didn't evolve as quickly or as completely as we thought. It took a long time for CMS or Medicare to uh, approve lung cancer screening. And I was part of the discussions with a CMS uh, about the uh, evaluation of the data and the decisions to approve coverage for lung cancer screening. 
And I think it became clear what the concerns were. The concerns were that outside of, of a well-regulated, well-controlled screening program, there were concerns that there might be uh, injudicious use of CT screening for lung cancer, and as importantly, might not be adequate follow-up of the nodules and other findings that might be detected by centers and may not be appropriate use of low-dose techniques to minimize the risk to patients, other than the risk, of course, that could ensue from from diagnostic procedures for patients that might not even have lung cancer. So a lot of concerns was understood, and so CMS developed a path forward to um, be able to assure as best as possible that lung cancer screening would be done in a, in a fashion that would minimize the risk and, and maximize the benefits that were shown by NLST. The other tenets, of course, were to have a shared decision-making uh, visit with the patient so they fully understood the risks and the benefits and also to incorporate smoking cessation, which is essential for those who are still smoking. But the uptake has been incredibly small. So maybe now we're up to 5% of eligible patients using Medicare criteria and Medicaid criteria who undergo CT screening. And that doesn't even encompass all the individuals who might benefit from screening if we were to open up the eligibility criteria, only 5%. So that is a challenge. And I think the challenge has to be embraced by us as uh, providers to understand the reason for the low uptake and to try and, and, and enhance uptake going forward. Uh, I think a lot of it may have to do with the concern of primary care physicians and others as to complexities that they may assume occur when there's an abnormality found on a CT scan. And you, and you know, and all radiologists know, that you put 100 people in a scanner and you're going to see abnormalities in 50 or 60 of them for sure. And then the clinical importance of those abnormalities is very unclear. So there's tons of uncertainties in there. And different people are, have different comfort levels with handling and managing uncertainty. So I, in my opinion, it's incumbent upon the screening programs to take ownership, if you will, in partnership for managing those abnormalities and the uncertainties and to make it as streamlined, efficient, and as easy for the patients and for their primary physicians as possible. That's, to me, the next step in the screening process, and I know the field is working to try and, and do that. So uh, that's the part that's a little bit frustrating is that we've made all this progress in showing the technology works. We've made all the progress in establishing a path forward to implement it in a way to maximize the benefits and minimize the harms, but the uptake is incredibly small. Once we get there, then we have to then move on to the next set of challenges that will come up, and there are two at least. One is how do we deal with the patients outside of the criteria we have now, 55 to 77 with 30 pack years, et cetera, et cetera, who are going to get lung cancer? This is all large number of those individuals. So high. is it possible to identify those high-risk individuals outside of that risk group and offer them screening in a way that, again, maintains the, the benefits and minimizes the risk? And then how do we manage all the comorbidity radiological findings that we see in these same patients, whether it be coronary calcium or whether it be emphysema or whether it be vertebral osteoporosis, or et cetera, et cetera? How do, how do we manage those? And how do we even report those in a systematic, standardized fashion so that they can be tracked and, and managed appropriately? Those are the next set of challenges that I think have to be addressed concurrently or sequentially. 
Yeah, I think Lungrats has tried to attempt to make it more standardized in that way. And even if for other um, non-lung nodule or lung cancer-related findings, like they have that S category for significant non-cardiac findings. Um, but long, long-term going forward in the future, do you think one day lung cancer screening with chest CT will be obsolete if there is um, a reliable um, biomarker that could be uh, used just in a blood test? Do you think? Do you think one day over the course of our careers? Um, CT lung cancer screening will be, uh, you know, sort of surpassed by just a blood test? No. Or whether even, no. you know, there was a recent Nature article published that hit mainstream news, whether AI will, you know, take over the role. Oh, wow. And make right. it more easily accessible. Okay, so a lot of really cool topics here. <laughs> All right, so first off, th there is a lot of effort, as you suggested, Adam, to identify blood-based biomarkers for cancer. And... And, and I would say that there's a significant amount of progress that's being made to have sensitive techniques to be able to detect cells that harbor molecular features that are associated with cancer. And I think those techniques are going to continue to evolve over time. But there's going to be a long path forward to try and understand the significance of those findings. Right now, we're really challenging our our concepts of when and how does cancer even start? And, and what does it mean to have early cancer cells present in the body versus having a cancer that is clinically detectable and clinically significant in a patient? Those are, those are open questions right now. And, and the field is, is striving to understand that and until we understand the answers to all those questions, we we're not going to be able to rely upon a blood test per se. And then you'd have to say, okay, I'm going to do a blood test and it's going to show that there's an abnormality that suggests there may be a cancer. Well, where is that cancer? And how are we going to know that? We're going to have to do imaging. And so maybe we move out of the realm of screening for detection of disease to using, again, that imaging study for the diagnosis of the location of the disease that maybe will get there eventually. But to me, CT screening is a very safe test. I really think it'll take a long time for us to move forward to a time where we don't need it. Now, whether there's a role for AI in this process is, is interesting. Every once in a while, we pulmonologists are entertained when we go to a meeting of radiologists and there's some comment that we're not going to need radiologists to read imaging studies anymore because we're going to have robots to read it and, and use AI and machine learning techniques to, to enhance that. We don't think that's feasible. And a similar discussion happens with pathologists. But I think it's, I think we'd all agree, but th there's a role for using computerized techniques to make our job a bit easier to do and to level the playing field. Not every patient in the country and certainly not every patient in the world has access to world-class thoracic radiologists like we're fortunate to have. And by leveling the playing field, what I mean by that is to be able to provide a better level of access across the board to patients, whether or not they have a, a world-class imager in their facility or not. So what does that mean? So it means Certainly in terms of detection of abnormalities, there's certainly a role for using computerized techniques to pluck out all those nodules. I can imagine that's probably not your favorite activity is to look at a scan and try and 
pick out all the nodules and quantify them and, and then track them over time. That's a, that's a task that is well suited to automation and, and computerized techniques to help you be able to identify the nodules and track them and see if there's a change over time. And that helps you and also helps other radiologists who may not be as adept in doing that to be able to feel more confident about that. Second thing is a lot of what we do, as we talked about before, is pattern recognition. And so that would suggest that the, the best radiologists are the ones who've had the most opportunity to see the most films and the most correlations of those films with disease. And then, and then over time, that experience just makes them awesome. Well, people aren't born like that. It takes a long time to get there. And, and there may be utility to using machine learning techniques to facilitate that process. So if you had the opportunity for a machine to acquire a large number of images with verified clinical diagnoses and that information were stored in an accessible database, then when a CT scan was being read by a radiologist, it would seem feasible for there to be a way to uh, do a correlation between the imaging study in front of you and then the paired annotated diagnoses that were available from machine learning techniques and provide that as a guide of likely diagnoses that may be considered as one is interpreting a study. Again, to help level the playing field a bit. Some expert radiologists probably wouldn't need it, but some might be a benefit doesn't replace the radiologist. It's, it's a tool to help them perhaps do their job a little bit better or even faster. So I, I see opportunities now and in the near future for these techniques to help make the, the job one that you may even enjoy more, it's not plucking out all these nodules, and, and, but, and also having the ability to have additional diagnostic information provided to you through machine learning techniques so that could help inform your learning process and help inform you in your interactions with clinicians. I, I think that those types of techniques are becoming more and more available all the time. Now, the paper you were referring to used AI techniques to try and determine whether a nodule is benign or malignant. And, and so to me, that's promising. What I really want to see is whether that has a clinical impact that is different than using a system such as lung rats, which is very easy to use and is probably effective. If AI can do better than lung rats, then that would be a home run. Otherwise, it's like a double, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> just switching gears a little bit, um, you are the current president of the Fleischer Society? I just finished my term okay. as the president of the Fleischer Society that culminated in our 50th anniversary meeting that we had in Paris. And now I am the immediate past president of the society. So um, for some of our listeners who might not be that aware, could you first tell us a little bit about the Fleischer Society and uh, its goals and who its members are? Um, and then um, what it was like being the president over the course of the past year? And maybe um, you might be able to share any upcoming developments that we could expect from the society in the future. Sure. So the Fleischer Society is 50 years old. It was um, named after a world-renowned radiologist, Felix Fleischner, who unfortunately passed away before the first meeting of the society. Uh, there were eight members at the time, 
when the society was formed. Members of the society at the time included those names who are, are very famous for us, like Fraser and Pere and, and pretty much and Felsen and all the textbooks of radiology that are, were published before and, and, and currently. And, and the idea was to bring together experts in the imaging of the lung, the structure of the lung, and the function of the lung provide opportunity for members to gather at least once a year for a scientific meeting to discuss the current research that was ongoing by each of the members, identify challenges in the field, and to uh, develop approaches to help move the field forward. A mechanism of doing that is white papers, which the Fleischer Society has been you know, doing, uh, um, publishing with regularity over the last several years, focusing on multiple different diseases, COPD, ILD, pulmonary nodules, and lung cancer with a, a focus on imaging and the clinical correlates thereof. So the society has grown. It's, as I mentioned, it started with eight, and now we're at 85 members. And the society has also changed in the, its composition from primarily comprised of radiologists to one that is truly interdisciplinary and also international. The majority of members are, are radiologists, but we also have a large number of pulmonologists, pathologists, medical oncologists, methodologists, epidemiologists, all contribute to bring a different perspective to the society as a whole. We see that there are areas in lung science and also in clinical medicine that we need to have additional expertise in in order to be able to better understand the types of challenges that we, we confront now as opposed to the way things were in the future. We move from an emphasis in the beginning of structure and function to understanding the, the role of, of physiology, biology, genetics, and genomics, imaging, artificial learning, clinical trial design, and clinical methodology uh, to really be able to have the disciplines necessary to help move the field forward. So that's what we do. Um, every year we have a scientific meeting where all the different disciplines present abstracts of the current work that they're doing. It is really a, a wonderful exchange because we all get exposed to cutting edge science from all different aspects of lung medicine. And the learning is quite intense. And it gives us an opportunity to ask questions of experts in fields other than ours so that we can learn. And it gives us the opportunity to really dive deep into clinical questions that remain challenging for us as a field of pulmonary disease to, to manage, so for examples. Um, interstitial lung abnormalities, ILA, is a very important topic for us to understand better. And, and I know you see it all the time. And so we'll have a white paper that we will be um, publishing on ILA in the next six to eight months, I would say, where we've gone to um, be able to understand what an ILA is, <laughs> uh, move from uh, ILA being IDK to actually <laughs> knowing what an ILA, can, how it can be consistently defined and measured and classified, and then understanding the clinical correlates. And I think that will be an important step in understanding what the clinical significance is of that finding. 
it's moved away from just being schmutz which is <laughs> <laughs> to really being something that has clinical significance. Uh, every study that has looked at clinical outcomes in patients with ILA seems to show that there are suggestions of increased mortality in patients who have ILA versus those who don't. And it's not so simple, right? It's not that it means ILA is a precursor of IPF necessarily because most patients who die don't die of respiratory death. They die of cardiovascular death. So then we need to understand how a presence of an ILA may correlate with the type of injury to the lung that is in turn associated with an increased risk of death from whatever cause, cardiovascular or, or not. To me, it's a very intriguing, interesting finding and kind of reinforces the theme of what we keep seeing in lung disease. And what we keep, the theme we keep seeing in lung disease is that it's imperative for us to move much earlier into the origins of lung disease because that represents a much better opportunity for us to have success in treatment. Right now, we, we don't have a lot of success in treating patients with advanced COPD. We don't have any disease-modifying treatments other than smoking cessation. Uh, we, have, we don't have a lot of success in treating patients who have advanced IPF. Uh, we, we do have two drugs that are approved that do show some efficacy, but I, I think we all would agree that that is far from a home run, and, and there's still room for us to, to do much better. We think a lot of the opportunities for us to do better are to move up earlier when the disease is still active and where there's still repair processes that still can be leveraged to perhaps move away from a disease phenotype that is associated with irreversible fibrosis and honeycombing and fibrosis or associated with irreversible airway obstruction and air trapping in COPD to where we can potentially reverse that eventuality. And ILA may represent an opportunity to understand lung injury and be able to intervene. And, and so to me, that's one of the themes that I think we've learned from cancer that applies to lung disease. In cancer, screening shows, the opportunities to have an important impact on survival is getting to the disease earlier. With the 17% decrease in lung cancer mortality from lung cancer screening, which is very, very impactful. So same thing applies in the application of what we've learned in cancer to other lung diseases. And as we talked about before, one of the advances in lung disease is the ability to accurately classify disease based upon the pathology and the biology and be able to leverage that information for prognostic uses and also for therapeutic uses. There are beautiful examples in cancer. And we talked about some of them, EGFR mm -hmm. treatment and ALK treatment, et cetera. But we don't do the same f in lung disease and we don't have the same kind of success, uh, although we're making progress. You know, 15 years ago, COPD was just COPD. And we treated all those patients the same. But now we have a better understanding that the pathological and the biological mechanisms associated with the phenotype that we typically associate with chronic bronchitis is different than emphysema really different manifestations of smoking-related lung disease. And, and now we're being able to understand the genetic underpinnings and the clinical associations of those different diseases and to treat them differently going forward. That's one advance. In IPF, we keep reclassifying the disease. It hasn't had a, a very impactful clinical utility as of yet. Maybe it will someday. But I'm more intrigued, actually, by a, a more simple, 
Doppler type of classification that seems to be emerging in patients that have fibrotic disease. Some patients seem to have disease that is progressive and some have disease that is not progressive. And some of the signals emerging from clinical trials seem to suggest, regardless of the classification of fibrotic disease, those that seem to be progressive will respond better to therapy than those who don't. So then maybe we have to change the way we lump these diseases together or classify them to understand the differences in those that are um, progressive versus not progressive and responsive and not responsive. And again, we take a lot what we've learned from cancer and the importance of classification and association with clinical outcomes and bring that to lung disease. And that, to me, that's been one of the advantages of being a pulmonologist with interest in lung cancer is that cancer is a science is ahead by far of lung disease. Cancer is a science ahead of most other uh, diseases that we study. And be able to understand how we can leverage that and bring it to lung disease has been helpful. You are the CEO of uh, Mount Sinai National Jewish uh, Health Respiratory Institute. Um, could you just talk a bit on how you created this partnership with National Jewish in Denver and um, what type of academic and clinical fruits have you just seen grown from this relationship? Well, similar to our discussions about how important interdisciplinary communications can be and between radiologists and pulmonologists and pathologists in, in helping us to do our jobs better, I think the same type of analogy also applies within pulmonary disease. And when we started off at Mount Sinai, uh, we were a smaller program uh, where we had expertise in, in several different disease areas, but but still had a large opportunity to grow our expertise in several other disease areas and to build our program up to cover um, areas that we didn't have as much coverage in before. So there was a lot of growth that uh, was required for us to become a world-class pulmonary program. And I had already established good working relationships with several of the pulmonologists at National Jewish Health which has been and still is the U.S. News and World Report first-ranked institution. Um, And I found those interactions to be really informative, helpful, reciprocal, pleasurable to to work with really smart people um, to answer and address the similar types of questions to move the field forward both clinically and research-wise. So when National Jewish Health was looking for partners in in New York to expand their clinical operations, we were very happy to engage in those conversations. And what we intended to do together was to build upon the complementary expertise at both sites. So National Jewish Health is a standalone uh, pulmonary hospital. Mount Sinai is a a large, world-class academic medical school um, with specific, wonderful expertise in genetics, genomics, bioinformatics, immunology. Of course, in, in pulmonary medicine, we were able to bring together the expertise of both institutions and create something that would be special and unique in New York. And so what we did is we rebuilt our clinical operation to bring into New York some of the elements that have been so effectively deployed in National Jewish Health, which in- include a truly patient-centered experience with staffing on site that provides an interdisciplinary approach to lung disease evaluation, diagnosis, and management with quite a bit of uh, investment in 
individuals who can augment the patient experience. So for that, what I mean is in our respiratory institute, we have nurse educators on site. When we provide a patient with a new diagnosis or a new treatment or a patient has a question about the use of particular medicine, the nurse will establish contact on site and maintain contact when the patient leaves. We have social workers on site to help patients deal with the psychosocial aspects of their diseases as well. And in addition, we have it by interdisciplinary approach in our respiratory institute, we have on site cardiologists, rheumatologists, allergists, thoracic surgeons, so the patients can get what they need at our location without having to go out and seek an appointment from a re referral that we might provide. So we're able to integrate the care, both in terms of disciplines, integrate the care in terms of what the patients require, and, be, and we're able to now employ systems where we can track the, the delivery of healthcare to our patients, and also now uh, be able to track outcomes for our patients, which becomes more and more important as we move to a, a healthcare system that emphasizes value uh, over just simple uh, fee-for-service types of arrangements. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, we're very grateful for it. And My uh, pleasure. One last quick question. We have a Philadelphian here who is a Phillies fan. <laughs> I oh know my. you spent some time That's in a Philly. problem. <laughs> Are you also a Phillies fan? No, I used <laughs> to go to the Veterans Stadium. It was empty. <laughs> <laughs> I was there. <laughs> and no, I'd much rather go to Shea. <laughs> very nice. nice. So go Mets. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Powell. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that journeys through the legends legacies and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. We hope you have enjoyed listening and look forward to seeing you next time.